morning, friends. My name is Perry. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my delight to be able to continue on and worship together by opening up God's Word. We will be in Revelation chapter 3 this morning, so if you have your Bible or you have your journal, your phone, whatever it is, go ahead and open to Revelation chapter 3. That's where we will be this morning. Now, it may seem a little strange for me to say what I'm about to say because I'm standing up on stage doing public speaking, but I'm a guy who really values privacy. I'm somebody who really values the opportunity to have a conversation that not just anybody can listen in on. I really value being in a physical space where not just anyone can show up. But even so, I've invited three new friends into my home over the past few years. Siri, Alexa, and Google. I read an article that said that there's an estimated 4.2 billion devices around the world of, as of 2020 that have this kind of digital voice assistant embedded into them. And by just next year, a four-year period, that number is expected to have doubled to 8.4 billion devices. Now, these things are super handy, right? We can ask it to send a text message or make a phone call for us. We can check the weather. We can check the scores of a late-night game the next day, can't we? <laughs> Hypothetically. We can get directions to an address where we've never been, and if we set everything up just right, we can even have it control features of our home, like turn the lights on and off. So why would people who really value privacy decide to bring a digital voice assistant into their home? Life is full of compromises, isn't it? We make compromises all the time. If you maybe can't relate to the technology piece as much, surely you can relate to being at a buffet where you have the salads on one end, the desserts on another, and instead you choose another piece of fried chicken in the middle. We all know what it's like to make compromises, but the danger is when we make compromises spiritually. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we're looking at seven messages to seven different ancient congregations all facing situations that are tempting them to compromise. We saw back in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1 a couple weeks ago that Jesus is speaking in the midst. He's not distant. He's not far off. He's not relying on someone else to tell him what's going on. But he's in the midst. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. The one who sees, who hears, who understands perfectly. And he knows exactly what each church is facing. And he addresses each one of them in their specific situation. It's important as we read this book that we realize that even though it has this vivid imagery and these scenes that maybe we have a hard time fathoming, that this is true. This is not fiction. John showed us this picture last week of the map of all of these seven churches, and I just want to show it again quickly because you can see that this is an actual location on the planet in Turkey. And if you zoom in on that, you see the route that John is addressing all of these through the words of Jesus. We looked last week at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira. This week in chapter 3, we're looking at Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And if you really just summarize what's at the heart of all of these messages, the core issue is one thing, faithfulness. And the core threat to that one thing is compromise. 
So as we open this morning to Revelation chapter 3, we're going to begin by looking at the church in Sardis and seeing the situation that they were facing that was causing them to compromise. Let's look at the text together. Revelation chapter 3 begins this way, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Welcome to church, everyone. Sardis was an ancient city known for its wealth, for its power, for its security. In terms of wealth, gold was discovered in the river that runs through the city, and it had a burgeoning industry that was providing income to the city. In terms of power, it was a large city of 60 to 100,000 in population. It was even the capital of an ancient empire. But in terms of security, its main distinctive feature was that it was perched on top of a high hill with 1,500-foot cliffs around it on three sides. What a strategic advantage to have. Surely this was a city that was completely secure. But on two occasions in its history, those who were responsible for maintaining the security of the city had let down their guard. They'd lost their vigilance, and the city had been attacked. People had scaled those cliffs opened the gate of the city, and it was invaded. Also, in the year 17 AD, a major earthquake had struck the region. There was a devastating effect in the city of Sardis, but by the generosity of Rome, the city was rebuilt using funds that Caesar provided. The message here to the church, though, is that you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. We don't know everything that might have given them that reputation. Perhaps the reputation was just tied in with the vitality of the city. But Jesus shows them that the reputation they have and the reality behind it are two different things. A reputation is an outsider's perspective. It may or may not actually reflect what's true and what's real. What kind of things might make a church have a reputation of being alive? Maybe attendance is spiking. Maybe you're adding services or, or new exciting programming. Hey, maybe you're even tearing out old carpet and painting the walls. There could be any number of things that might make us think that a church has a reputation of being okay, of being alive, of being a place of, of great faith. But they may be the wrong indicators if we're only looking on the outside. And Jesus exposes the fact that they are, in fact, on the inside dead. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. The reality is that it was a difficult thing to be a church, to be a Christian in the first century in the Roman Empire. There were all kinds of false gods in the Roman Empire. And unlike our day where we try to keep our religion off to the side and then we have politics and business and our social life over here, those were all blurred together in one giant blob in the first century in the Roman Empire. It was so much so that there were gods everywhere that would permeate into your business transactions, into your social engagements, 
into the political life, as you gave homage to Caesar, you would also give homage to the gods that were behind Caesar, that gave Caesar the legitimacy to rule. One author, David De Silva, puts it this way. He says, Roman power was represented in the seven cities in many ways, but perhaps most prominent was the imperial cult. The temples, shrines, altars, and cult images dedicated to Augustus, to members of his household, and to all who succeeded to the imperial office. So everywhere you went, you would have a situation where people were worshiping the Roman gods. Of course, this is a problem for the Christian. Larry Hurtado is another scholar who just brings out a point that we already know, but Christianity was the only new religious movement of the Roman era that demanded this exclusive loyalty to one deity, thereby defining all other cults of the time as rivals. This is a new religious movement. Of course, an ancient one also had this. When you think back to the pages of Exodus 20, verse 3, it says, you shall have no other gods before me, the first of the Ten Commandments. Do you see how there might be the temptation to compromise. When you're operating and living in an environment that acknowledges many gods, but yet you are called as a believer to worship only and acknowledge only the one true God in Jesus Christ, do you see how there could be situations that would pull you towards compromise? Don't you want to be accepted by the people around you? Don't you want to be able to participate in the full opportunities provided to you by society? Well, if you really want those things, you might have to give up some of this exclusive loyalty to the one true God. If we're going to be faithful, we need to be able to recognize the patterns of compromise. And the first pattern we see here in the city of Sardis is the pattern of being complacent, of letting our guard down spiritually, of lacking vigilance in our spiritual life. Just like the city that was attacked due to a lack of vigilance, in our spiritual lives, we can also lack vigilance as well. Just growing comfortable, feeling like there's no threat, and in so doing, maybe we just blend in and accommodate our lives too much to the surrounding environment. John has a solution that he offers here. Jesus has given him these words, and this is the instruction to those people. Remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. I like to learn new things just as much as anyone else. I love to have new discoveries that I get to make. I find that exciting. But much of the Christian life is more about remembering the things we've already learned than it is about discovering new things we haven't learned before. When we gather together in a room like this on Sunday mornings, one of the primary tasks that we have is to remind each other of the gospel. To remind each other of the things that we've already learned and know. One of the primary tasks in all of our classes, our life groups, our Bible studies, whatever setting we find ourselves in together as a body of Christ, it's to remind each other of the things that we have received and heard so then we might keep it. Isn't it so easy for us as we go about our week and we interact with people in the workplace or in our neighborhoods, maybe in just other social settings that we're in, isn't it so easy for us to forget the basics? 
Isn't it so easy for us to forget that there's one true God who's sovereign over all things? Isn't it easy to forget that Jesus Christ has paid for our sins by His blood? The remedy for the church in Sardis is to remember what they've received and heard to keep it and repent. And this is a great remedy for us too if we find ourselves in a place of being spiritually complacent. To return back to those things that maybe we've forgotten. And the warning here is if we will not wake up, Jesus will come like a thief who scales the 1,500-foot cliffs at an hour no one's expecting him. It's a vivid imagery of what's at stake here. Compromise puts us in a dangerous position. And if we're going to be faithful, we have to recognize and be alert to the patterns of compromise. And the first pattern we see here in the example of Sardis is the pattern of compromise as it relates to being spiritually complacent. But there's another example in chapter 3 as well. To see that, we need to skip down to verse 14. This time to a different city, the city of Laodicea. Laodicea is also facing a situation where they are giving in to compromise. Let's read about it now. Verse 14 says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. If Sardis was a city that had a lot going for it, Laodicea was even more so. One scholar has called it one of the wealthiest commercial centers in the world. It was built at the intersection of three major roads in the Roman system. So it was ideally suited to be a place of commerce. And it had a vibrant commerce. The major industry was that they had developed a, a way to produce black woolen garments. It was famous for that, as well as for a medical school that had been built in the city. They developed various medical treatments, including an eye salve to help people with problems with any kind of vision that they could just put on their eye to help heal the, the problem that they were facing. Not only that, but it had a vibrant banking industry that helped fund all of the commercial enterprises in the city. It was a vibrant place to be. Like what I said with Sardis, Laodicea also was prone to earthquakes, though. And another earthquake, this time in 60 AD, had struck the city. But in that case, the wealth of Laodicea was so great that they were able to rebuild the city with no help from the outside. The first words here from Jesus, that I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. This is almost surely a reference to the water temperatures of the area. A close-by city was Colossae. You might recognize that as the letter to Colossians that the Apostle Paul wrote. Well, in that city, there were cold water springs that provided the city with refreshing drink. Another city, Hierapolis, that was close to Laodicea as well, was known for having hot water springs. And that city's water was known for providing healing and soothing conditions for people. Meanwhile, in Laodicea, 
They had a water supply that was somewhere between the cold waters and the hot waters, but also probably water that was really high in mineral content. Because of that, unpleasant to drink. In fact, some have even wondered if whether this was the kind of water that you would drink to induce vomiting. Not the kind of water supply that you'd like to have. But Jesus says, look, you're neither cold like the good water of Colossae, you're neither hot like the great water of Hierapolis, but your works are like the water of your own city, which is useless. I would just spit it out of my mouth. And then he explains what he means. He says, you say, I'm rich. I have prospered. I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. If Sardis had a condition of compromise that we could just call spiritual complacency, what Laodicea has is spiritual self-dependence or self-reliance. This is a city that because of its wealth, because of its prestige, they're able to just live lives where they say, I'm good. I got it. I can take care of myself. That's okay in a material sense, but when that bleeds over into our spiritual lives, we are in trouble. They think that they can live lives that are not dependent, not reliant on Christ because their material lives look so good. Can I just say that as I read through these seven, this is one that really resonates with our own situation today. We too are a society of great means. We have a lot of affluence. And praise God, there are plenty of examples in Scripture of people who have a lot of means, who have a lot of financial means, a lot of assets, who live faithful, righteous lives. But the temptation is to take what we have materially and to confuse it with what our spiritual lives are like. And that's exactly what they've done here, not even recognizing their true state, that they are in poverty. They think they're rich. Jesus says, no, 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 you're actually, you're poor. They think that they have prospered, and Jesus says, no, no, no you're, you're, you're wretched. You're pitiable. They say, I have everything I need. Jesus says, you don't even realize. You are poor, you are blind, and you are naked. You are in the most helpless situation as long as you depend on yourself. Spiritually. Jesus continues on here. And he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus wants them to have everything spiritually that they have materially. But because of all that they have materially, they're having trouble seeing their great need for Jesus' provision here for their spiritual lives. But Jesus just says, I offer this to you. And it comes through this means, if we keep going in verse 19 and 20. It says, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. I mean, just think of that. The opposite of being self-reliant is this kind of zeal for the Lord. Be zealous and repent. Turn away from the direction that you're going and instead come back to Christ. And where is Jesus? He's outside of their fellowship. 
We often think of this verse, verse 20, as being something in the setting of personal evangelism. But really, it's here in chapter 3 of Revelation as a verse spoken to a congregation in Laodicea. I stand at the door and knock. What a tragic occurrence for Jesus to be outside of the church rather than in fellowship in the midst of them. But yet, what a gracious picture of Jesus and his mercy as he presents the opportunity, just knocking. Let me in. How do they let him in? They let him in by repenting, by turning from the direction that they've been going. So if we're going to be faithful, we need to recognize and be alert to the patterns of compromise in our lives. And the first pattern of compromise is the pattern of being spiritually complacent. The other pattern here that we see with Laodicea is being spiritually self-reliant. But if compromise is something that endangers our faithfulness, then what encourages our faithfulness? Well, there's hope for us. If we look back, even at the example of Sardis, we can see that even if you're in an environment of unfaithfulness, that doesn't mean you're committed to it as well. You can be faithful even when you're surrounded by unfaithfulness. This is what was said back in verse 4. You have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. To soil your garments back then was to have dirty clothes on, which you would never do if you were approaching a deity. If you were approaching the presence of any kind of deity, you would make sure you were dressed in white, clean clothing because it symbolized ritual purity that you were in a state where you could approach that deity. Jesus is saying, some of you, even though you have this reputation of being alive, but so many are dead, I know there are some. There are some who are alive. But the best example in chapter 3 of Revelation is not in Sardis. It's in the church that we skipped over. The church in Philadelphia. It's in verse 7. So I'd like us to turn our attention there quickly. And this is what's said to the church in Philadelphia. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. Notice the difference here between the two examples we've read already. This is an open door which no one is able to shut. I know, I know that you have little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. This is a church that's feeling powerless. It's probably a small congregation. Probably a congregation that feels marginalized. Probably feels like it doesn't have much influence in the city that it's in. They feel small. They feel powerless. They feel like they're outsiders maybe even in the city. But the thing they're commended for is that they have kept my word and not denied my name. 
If we're going to understand what faithfulness looks like, we need to first of all understand that faithfulness does not happen in the absence of trials and difficulties. They're facing tremendous pressure here from what is called the synagogue of Satan. Jesus is using this vivid imagery probably to talk about a conflict between the Jews in the city and the church in the city, the Christians in in the city who trust in Christ. And he's saying that those people who are your enemies, I will make them come down and actually bow down before your feet someday. The Old Testament prophets spoke of a day when Gentiles would come and bow down before the feet of the people of God. Here, in a kind of ironic twist, it's actually Gentile believers who are the ones standing and being bowed down in front of by Jewish unbelievers. This is a great promise of hope to these people who are struggling so much. But as we think about the fact that faithfulness seems to be growing out of this great pressure, this feeling of inadequacy, this feeling of powerlessness, that should change the way we think, or at least influence the way we think about our own lives. I think about our prayer lives and how whenever we face difficulty, it's just natural for us to want to pray, Lord, get me out of it. Lord, take away the pain. Take away the trouble. Take away the complication that I'm facing. What would it look like instead to say, Lord, would you make me faithful in this moment? Lord, would you give me the strength to bear up underneath this great pressure I'm facing? Lord, would you... Would you give me wisdom to know what it looks like to walk faithfully with you through this circumstance that I would never choose for myself? Sometimes faithfulness grows out of situations that we would never want to be in. But it's the exact situation that the Lord is using to call faithfulness out of us. So if we're going to recognize the patterns of compromise that will help us with being faithful. But we see through this example, through the church in Philadelphia, that faithfulness comes not like the Laodiceans from relying on ourselves, but from relying on Christ. A deep dependence on the Lord is what faithfulness is all about. So as we set these two before us, we might think of compromise over here and faithfulness over here. And we might just evaluate the two of them and recognize that both of them will cost us. Faithfulness will cost us whatever compromise may have given us as an advantage in our lives. Compromise, though, will cost us whatever the reward of faithfulness is. And we, when we evaluate the two of them, we see that While compromise may have the short-term benefit and payoff, it will cost us dearly in the end, and faithfulness just the opposite, that it, it might cost us in the near term, but in the long term, there is an incredible reward that awaits. And that's actually where John goes in each one of these messages. You might have noticed that each one of these ends in a similar way, talking about the one who conquers. Now, Revelation 4-22 through 22 unpacks more about what it means to be a conqueror. But we could just say for our purposes this morning that it has everything to do with faithfulness. And listen to what John says is in store for those who are faithful in each of these churches. Let's go first to the example of Sardis. 
To Sardis, he says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. To this church that had been invaded, who thought that they were secure because of their geographic location, they see here what the ultimate security is here. The ultimate security in never having your name blotted out of the book of life if you will only be faithful, if you will only repent. To the church in Philadelphia, the battered church there, John says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. The ancient temple had two freestanding massive pillars on either side of the entrance. One commentator has just pointed out how the point of that massive structure was to make the worshiper feel very small. They approached the presence of God. They had this physical reminder of how small they really are. To a church that feels small, what an incredible reward described here of what awaits them if they will only be faithful. To the church in Laodicea, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. What an incredible picture for these self-reliant people. For those who will repent of that and realize how much they actually are reliant upon the Lord, they will get to sit in the very presence of the Father and the Son. I can only imagine that there would not be a shred of self-reliant thinking in your head in that moment. These are the rewards that await the faithful. But in the meantime, their faithfulness will cost them something. But I think the overarching message of each of these seven messages in Revelation 2 and 3 is that the cost of faithfulness is a price worth paying. The cost of faithfulness is a price worth paying, whatever it might cost us in our lives right now. I don't know what your situation is. I don't know what you might actually be enduring in your own life or the, the temptations to compromise. But let me just promise you, through the words of Jesus recorded in these pages of Scripture, that whatever the cost is, it is a price worth paying. Let this be a great encouragement for those of us too who are in positions where we have compromised. Jesus is offering us an opportunity to turn from that. To remind ourselves of the Gospel. To turn away from from being people who might be relying upon ourselves, just thinking that because life is materially comfortable, that surely we are spiritually healthy. If that's the moment we're in, may we repent of that, turn from that, and come back to a life of faithfulness to Christ. Because whatever the cost might be, it is a price worth paying. Each one of these seven messages ends the same way. I want to end that way right now. It's an encouragement for us all to hear, to listen well. Jesus says, He who has an ear, she who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your Word that instructs us, that teaches us, that encourages us, that coaches us. Lord, that challenges us. And in some cases, 
maybe even rebukes us. Father, I pray for each one of us in this room to evaluate our lives in light of this text. I pray we would evaluate it and think through the ways that we might be giving in to compromise. Father, give us the just this irresistible desire to repent of that and come back to you. And Father, in those areas where we are faithful but feel like we're struggling and weak, I pray we would find strength in you, God. I pray we would, like the church in Sardis, we would remember the gospel and keep it. I pray like the church in Philadelphia that we would have endurance to continue on in faithfulness. And I pray like the church in Laodicea, Father, that we would recognize our poverty apart from you. We would rely on you fully to supply what we lack. So God, give us the grace for all of these things. And we pray all of this for your glory and in your powerful name, the name of Jesus Christ, the one who is in the midst of the lampstands. Amen.